This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today, with a court-ordered special redistricting session of the legislature looming, we'll talk with the Speaker of the House, John Burns. Does he agree that black voters are underrepresented in legislative and congressional districts? I'm Tia Mitchell. We'll also ask the Speaker whether he'll take up measures to expand Georgia's hate crime law to cover anti-Semitism when the regular session begins in January. But first, Governor Kemp reaffirmed his unwavering support for Israel in his war with Hamas after an emotional meeting with Israelis grieving the unknown fate of relatives being held hostage in Gaza. They shared our stories. They shared their commitments to help. I'm Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy. Later, a conversation with CNN political director David Chalian about Georgia's role as a battleground state in the 2024 election cycle. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. In just a few minutes, we're going to be joined by the Speaker of the Georgia House, John Burns. We have a lot to talk with him about, including the fact that, as most people know by now, um, a federal court has ordered that the legislature come back into session to pass new district maps, saying that the maps that were drawn back in 2020 don't give uh, black Georgians uh, fair representation in the legislature or in Congress. So we'll get to that in just a little while when the speaker joins us. But but in the meantime, Greg and Patricia, I want to start just for a couple minutes now. The two of you were at a really powerful and kind of extraordinary meeting yesterday. Governor Kemp and his wife, Marty, met with a group of Israelis whose relatives had been kidnapped by Hamas. Greg, you reported that after the meeting, Mrs. Kemp had tears in her eyes. She talked about hugging them, crying with them, calling them family. And and it is another example of how the governor has been a fierce supporter of Israel since the Hamas attacks. Yeah, we've seen a political split in a sense, especially in the Democratic Party, as as many Democrats, look, all politicians, or most politicians we've heard from, have united to condemn the deadly Hamas attacks on October 7th and the abduction of hundreds of Israeli civilians taken to captivity in, in Gaza. Uh, but since then, we've had a number of Democratic leaders who have also said, look, there needs to be a humanitarian pause or a ceasefire or a de-escalation of, of violence. Um, but meanwhile, Republican leaders, including Governor Kemp, have mof- mostly kept their focus on Israel's plight, on Israel's defense of its boundaries, of Israel's efforts to, to, to rescue those hostages taken into Gaza. Greg and Patricia, we're going to listen to now the conversation that the two of you had with these family members. We are thankful, thankful for the support. Uh, the governor of the Georgia's people, because we met the communities and it means a lot. Uh, it cannot be taken down from from the agenda. I think uh, not even after when they are all back, because what happened something that changed history, uh, and it is personal. 
it should be personal for every human being and not only for us as families. And if I'm not mistaken, you had 12 relatives who were victimized in the October 7th attack? Yes, so three murdered, nine were kidnapped, and fortunately two were released. Uh, it's a great help of the American people and the American administration. And it gave not only us hope to get our, the rest of our family back, but all the families uh, to get everyone home. Uh, and there is nothing in our new reality that is similar to what happened before. Uh, everyone left everything and this is what we do now. Uh, I'm a musician and a music producer. Since started, I haven't played even one note. This is what I do now until every and one of them are back. What did you tell the governor back there when you were talking to him about your families, your loved ones who are still being held hostage by a terrorist group? It was a very uh, warm and intimate and real conversation between people. Uh, we shared our stories. Uh, they shared their uh, commitment to help. Uh, the governor and the first lady were harmed. And it's, again, we're not taking that for granted because in, in these days of age, it's not easy to support Israel. It's not easy to support humanity. Um, and for us to see, again, like it's such a warm welcoming and um, you ask what we ask them. And it, it's not only him. We ask everyone. And we can start small. We need the Red Cross in to examine the hostages. We don't know their status. We don't know if they're dead or alive. We don't know how they're being kept, in which conditions. We don't know if they eat, if they sleep. Um, my cousin was kidnapped without glasses for 24 days. She hasn't seen. So we need to make sure that we get the Red Cross thing. Secondly, we need them out. We need them home. And what we've asked, not only the governor, we're asking everyone, if we allow civilians to be taken from their homes today, then I don't know what's going to happen to the world tomorrow. It's not about, um, by the way, they kidnapped Muslims, they kidnapped Christians, they kidnapped um, individuals from Thailand. They, they kidnapped not only Jewish people, and that's why I think that the world I think that we have over 30, 30 nationalities with the, all the kidnaps. It, it's not something that is an Israel problem. And I'm saying this bluntly. It is not about a conflict. It's terror. And it should not be permitted in any way. So we ask the governor and the first lady to use everything in their power to make sure that the hostages are home. And your hopes for talking to, you know, he's not a national leader, he's not President Biden, he's not in the White House. Your hopes for talking to a governor of the state of Georgia, which is no small potatoes, but not on a national scale. What do you hope that a governor of a state can do? Uh, we are from Israel, but uh, this attack uh, unfortunately affected the world and the Jewish world and Jewish people all around the world, uh, 70 years ago we said 
never again. We say each year, my grandmother is a Holocaust survivor. And now we see protests of people that they think that they advocate for peace, but the Israeli, the Israelis uh, are advocates of peace. This is who we are. These are the, the hostages, people who are every day fighting for human rights without any difference of gender, race. Uh, and when we see these things happening inside the communities of warm people, of peaceful people, uh, it hurts. And we think the governor, uh, all the leaders, but also the people uh, should check the facts before they go to protest to act against violence and not to use violence to, to spread a message. Uh, this is what we hope that the future will bring. Uh, a community without violence. Did you ever, when you say never again, the United States is full of people who fled the Holocaust, fled the pogroms. Um, we always say never again. We're seeing more and more anti-Semitism. Did you believe this could ever happen to your family in 2023? It's a tricky question because I'm going to say a yes and no. Mm -hmm. Because never in our wildest dream we thought that it would happen again. But as part of our fear, we always say, like, let's educate what happened during the Holocaust. Um, our grandparents were there and they were saying, we're going to tell you what happened. Not because we want you to live through it, but we want you to know that evil exists. And you need to be aware of it. When I see the, the, you know, the rallies and, and the riots and students in, in, you know, in Metro Atlanta that are scared to go to their classrooms because they might get attacked to well, have an Only for being Jews, you know, this is so crazy. You can't even imagine being attacked only for being a Jew. And it's, it, you know, Israel and the Jewish people um, stood by every group of human rights that came. The Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, LGBTQ, we were there. And we were like, not only we support you, we are going to do everything in our power that human rights will not be offended and that people will prevail and, you know, and evil will not. And we kneeled and we stood and we yelled and we did everything in our power that democracy and freedom and human rights will prevail. And to get to a point that now, in these days of age, we have students that are not able to go to classrooms. We have students that are asked not to come to school, not to educate themselves because they're being taught hate. When we talk about people that are scared to show support, we heard when we were here and we met, again, the most wonderful people that we've ever met, like the two Southern hospitality, okay? And I'm not saying this, I'm saying this proudly. Today's Halloween. There are people 
in Atlanta Metro that are seeking protection to take their kids trick-or-treating. That is not okay. Our hostages, our family members, we would like to ask the world to see them as your own. We haven't slept, we, we're not eating, we don't feel comfortable. Every sound makes us nervous. But we are here standing together. I, I call it my new family because, you know, we're, we're all of us in this together, but it's not only the Jewish people. It's not only Christians and it's not about our, our Muslim brothers. It's about being human. Civilians cannot be taken from their homes. That is not something that we can deal with. This is my cousin's granddaughter. She's now in Gaza. Yahel, she's three years old. So, if someone goes to a protest uh, against Israel in, in a time like this, and you can criticize a lot, internally we criticize a lot of actions, but when you see a picture of a three-year-old in Gaza right now, waiting to come home, and then you go and support that, I don't know, I have no words to describe how it, how it hurts. There are over 40 babies and children in Gaza right now. 40. There's a nine-month-old baby that is allergic to formula. What is he eating? It's not okay. It's not something that can be okay. And we're, you know, we're standing here, we stopped our lot three weeks ago. Um, and we will continue because I think that, again, that's the way the world should listen to us. We should use our words to speak in order for this really to never happen again. Are enough people talking about this? And we do should need, there be more? We, we need your we need help more. to keep on resonating this because there will be a time that something happens which is interesting. We cannot let this go. We know what the media is. It has a very short memory. And I'm not saying this with any disrespect, but that's the truth. But we need to understand that there are 240 civilians that are being held hostage in Gaza right now. I'm so sorry. Um, and you are being summoned with the rest of your group to go? Yeah. But we so I'm going to mangle this. But Lev Shali Thank you. And I know or means light. You bring a light to a story that needs to have light. So thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Um. Thank you for that. I'll tell you what we're going to do. Uh, Speaker John Burns has just joined us by phone. We're going to talk to him. But before we do, take this quick break. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. 
Welcome back to Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. We think the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. You can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. Just go to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts and get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts so you'll always know what's really going on. We are going to introduce in just a moment the Speaker of the Georgia House, John Burns. But just very quickly, let's set up part of what we'll talk about today. It was just last week that federal judge Steve Jones ordered Georgia lawmakers to redraw legislative and congressional maps. He ruled that black voters are underrepresented in the districts drawn by GOP legislators after the 2020 census. Um Burns has graciously agreed to join us today, and that's one of the subjects that we're going to talk about. But, Mr. Speaker, thank you for being here. Let me just mention a little bit about you as we introduce you to some of our listeners who may not be uh, familiar with you. You are the 75th Speaker of the Georgia House. You uh, started serving in this last session in January of 2023. The heart of your district, I think, is Scriven County, uh, which is what, just about midway between Augusta and Savannah. You're basically a country lawyer. Um, And also, you've been in the legislature for almost two decades now. Have I got that pretty right, uh, Mr. Speaker? No, Bill, I hate to correct you on your own program, but I'm going to. Yes. So uh, I'm not a country lawyer. Okay. I'm an agricultural guy. I'm a farmer and an agribusinessman, and that's what I've been all my life. I do have a, a legal background in my uh, resume, but um, that's not, not how I've uh, made a living over the years and raised a family. And I also live in northern Effingham County, yes. which is just next door to Scriven County. Yes. So it's to a- kind of get you in the right spots, but you were close. Hey, and by the way, well, welcome to your new program. And if you have any problems with, with those folks, with uh, Patricia or T or Greg, I know their boss, so you can call on me at any time. Well, Mr. Speaker, I appreciate your uh, correcting me. Um, and uh, let's get right to it. Um, Greg, Greg and Patricia, you two spend an awful lot of time covering the legislature. So I really am hopeful that you will kick us off in this conversation. Greg, let me start with you. Yes, Speaker Vernes, you've convened a Georgia House working group that's been meeting this year. One of the key topics has been finding enough money to attract and retain state law enforcement officers. I know this is a problem throughout the state, but what are the solutions you're exploring here? And is tapping deeper into the state surplus one of them? Well, not really into the surplus, Greg. I think we we need a sustainable, um, continuing um, uh, funding source to address the issues um, when it comes to public safety, and certainly we're very undermanned. And um, the Georgia State Patrol, only about 700, a little over 700 troopers out on the road. And as we all know, their mission has expanded over the years. So we're in, in quite a quandary there as far as the, uh, the workforce and the, the amount of um, uh, effort that we're, we're requiring from our troopers to uh, meet the needs of public safety all over rural Georgia and Georgia and, and urban Georgia these days. So we're looking at what is what it's going to take. We have um, former commissioner of public safety, Bill Hitchens, who's now chairman Bill Hitchens in the House, who's heading up a very robust discussion. And we're looking at what it's going to require to recruit, reward and retain those troopers. And we think that's um, it's going to uh, 
require us to be uh, competitive with our local law enforcement agencies and certainly other states. And we'll also look at what's always been a strong part of employment with the state of Georgia is ensuring that the retirement benefits are um, certainly are, are very, very positive as as to, um, you know, when, when these folks retire as they go on with the rest of their lives. So we're looking at all facets of it. And we um and Chairman Hitchens and his committee is doing an outstanding job, a bipartisan committee. So we're think we're, we're we don't have the recommendations back yet, but uh, we're getting close. Speaker Burns, it's Patricia Murphy. Um, thanks so much for joining us today. Hello. So anybody who knows you also knows that your wife, Dale, has a long career in education. And one of the first things that has happened under your leadership in the House was creating the House uh, Georgia Literacy Council. And I know that literacy is a huge focus for you for several reasons. I'd love if you could bring us up to speed on where that council is right now in terms of its organization and activities and what your goal is uh, for literacy here in the state. Absolutely, Patricia. Thank you for that question. Uh, we have two powerful voices. One of them is that are there are ladies that are one of them is a member of the House. That's Bethany Ballard. Um, and we passed legislation that with her background in education that will help us strengthen literacy in Georgia. And then certainly my wife, Dale, who was who retired as an elementary school principal. Her passion has not only been with with children in the school system, but with with raising my our children and our grandchildren. Um, her passion for education and reading is is very evident to me. And certainly she understands because of her educational background and her continued involvement in this area, certainly um, how important it is and how you um, how you get results. And that's what she's been able to share with the uh, committee, the working group on several occasions. I'm very, very proud of her and I've had um, lots of positive feedback from members, professionals, if you will, in that educational sector. Some of them are certainly um, everyday uh, professionals, uh, superintendents, um, administrators, and certainly we also included lay people that um, have, a, have a significant interest in literacy. We want to attack, if you will, literacy on the front end. Uh, we, um, we want children to be able to certainly be competent reading at least by the third grade. And I'm going to say at least by the third grade. But so we're 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 very passionate about this. We also have uh, Speaker Pro Tem Jan Jones um, just looking into how we employ um, lottery dollars as we enhance and engage all children, all children across Georgia in our pre-K programs. So we're taking a very comprehensive look um, in addressing these issues on the front end. But we certainly will be continue to be compassionate as we. Um, those that, that that did not receive the uh, uh, skill set of reading early on in their education to go back and address that with them because we know the quality of life of, of Georgians in so many different ways is impacted by our literacy rate. And um, whether it be workforce training, public safety, the whole gamut of what, um, what a quality of life is about and is, is impacted here. And we're going to make a difference. We're going to come out. So we're committed to coming out with policy initiatives uh, based on the facts that would allow all Georgia children to um, be literate early on. Tia? Hi, Speaker Burns. Thanks so much for joining us. I do want to go Thank back you. to that um, federal judges. Thank you. I want to go back to that federal judges um, ruling 
um, that has called for a special session. You guys will be back to draw new maps. What's going to be your approach um, to this uh, new redistricting process? And what kind of roadmap? The judge specifically said, do this, do these things. Um, are you guys going to kind of follow him to the letter? Can you give us some insight? Sure, Tia. And um, you're a fast reader because you've already read those 538 pages. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and certainly understand them. We got the Cliff's notes. Yeah. Well, how about forward those to me? I'll share my email address <laughs> when, when we get off. Um Yes, certainly. Um, Judge Jones has um, is is uh, is a is a is a fine jurist, and we uh, certainly respect his opinion. Uh, but you know, we also have an opinion as well. But we certainly are, are are looking deeply into his exact order and what he expects and and what his order um, and and involves and and what it will take to uh, certainly meet his order. Um, and but we're we're working. We have I have a I serve with a very uh, a a group of uh, very talented uh, people in, in the house, and we're certainly going to consider lots of different viewpoints and opinions as it comes to redistricting. And I believe the work we did a couple of years ago, Tia, that um uh, that was you know we was not challenged by anyone then at that time. Um, that, that that has stood that we we did a good job to represent the interest of all Georgians, but certainly we are when um, we're now, we're now tasked with going back and taking an additional look and and look at some issues that the judge is is pointing out to us. And again, what we do a very good job of, I believe, in the House is re, be respectful and consider everyone's opinions. But most importantly, we deal with the facts. And we want to go back and take a deep look into the specific facts in those districts that the um, in the areas of our state that Judge Jones has pointed out. I think at the end of the day, we'll um, we'll 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 be in a place that Judge Jones will um, be able to accept and will be, you know, what's best for um, for our members and more importantly, be more be important and impactful for our constituents the people of Georgia. That's where we're going to get to, and I'm looking forward to um, going through that process. Uh, Mr. Speaker, Bill Nygut again. Um, and by the way, to further uh, make my correction, not only Speaker, but Farmer John Burns, um, the, the, when you, you just said that you think that the judge will be satisfied with what you come up with, I really kind of have two questions about that. As you well know, uh, Judge Jones suggested that there should be one additional congressional district that could uh, favor black voters, give black voters a chance to put someone in that seat, a Democrat, presumably, and seven legislative seats, five in the House and two in the Senate. When you say you think you can come back with something that uh, the judge will be happy with, does that mean you agree that you do need to add those seats? Bill, you will say I'm giving you an evasive answer, but I'm really not when I say this. We're going to look at the makeups of those areas and those districts that the judge is, is pointing out to us, and, um, and and we'll 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 look at we'll we'll make appropriate alterations or or tweaks those districts. I think that that gets us in the right place. But here's one of the things I want to remind remind um, all of you on the panel and our listeners. Um, I believe that the um, 
representatives of whomever in any district and any 180 members of the House is based on the uh, on, on the member, on, on the candidate. You know, if they're a really good candidate that comes from that area, that identifies with the area, who proves to the voters that they will be representative of that area and of their interests, I believe, more so than other factors, that's the person that people elect to represent them in the General Assembly in the Georgia House of Representatives is where they can get someone who cares about them, understands their values, understands what their issues are. Those are the people that will be elected. And I think of um, a lot of other issues go to the side, go away when you start looking at the quality, if you will, the quality of, candid- of candidates. Speaker Burns, it's Greg. Um, I want to shift topics a little, a little bit here. Uh, supporters of Georgia's anti-abortion law won a key legal victory last week. The legal fight, of course, isn't over yet. There's going to be appeals. There's there's going to be more uh, legal uh, arguing back and forth. But there are already calls among some conservatives to enact new abortion limits that go beyond the 2019 law. Do you think lawmakers should take more steps to restrict abortions, or should they leave the current laws in place as they are now? Greg, I think we're in the same spot there. We've... Uh... Uh, our law has been upheld by, by our Supreme Court, and certainly um, we um, we work very diligently to to um, craft legislation that that was was balanced. Um, I've not again, I've not reviewed exactly what the um, and have not heard from a lot of folks on either side of this the issue here. Uh, so uh, you know, at this point in time, as we um, also, if you will, wade through the legal challenges uh, to. Um, with these policies, I think um, that's we're we're in a posture, I believe, of um, certainly again being very comprehensive and listening to our members, taking their thoughts in consideration. But um, we, until we get all the facts in as as to where it may be impacted from a, from the judicial branch, then I think we're in a good spot right now. Speaker Burns, for the upcoming legislative session, this will be the first time you really have a chance to lay out an agenda. Um, You were really thrust into this role quite unexpectedly, um, elected overwhelmingly unanimously after the death of Speaker Ralston. But now you've got your own session to really chart out. And it is also an election year here in Georgia. All of your members will be up. What do you anticipate coming up? What are you going to be bringing forward proactively? We know there will be a lot of uh, controversies that pop up uh, that people may or may not see coming. But what do you want to get out of this session? Thanks, Patricia. I, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to, 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 to show you part of my vision. One of the things that we, we will continue to work on, it's been a passion of um, of the House, not just Speaker Ralston or Speaker Burns or Speaker Jones, is um, is mental health. We, we need to continue working on mental health because it's so impactful in all of our lives. Every every family in Georgia is, is impacted by mental health issues. And, and there's something that um, we've fallen a little bit, we've fallen behind in. And so we need to uh, continue to focus on mental health. Um, one of my major issues is certainly public safety. Uh, we talked a little bit about it, so I won't go deeply back in the public safety is- issues again. But if Georgia will continue to be the best place in this nation in which to do business, to live, work, and raise a family, and I like to add, have a little fun, then we have to ensure that our citizens are safe in their homes and in their schools and, and where they work in place. So we, um, those are priorities for me. <clears throat> Certainly, um, and I'll go back to the one we mentioned earlier also, literacy. We have to get literacy right. We have to get be moving forward in a very 
positive, strategic manner. Uh, those are the things that we'll push out really hard on. You'll see some others we're going to take the lead on because that's what that's what the House does. And we're going to take the lead on those. We're going to be taking the lead on great investments along with Governor Kemp in conjunction with the Senate on investment of, of some of our uh, budgetary positives, if you will, and, and our surplus to make sure that we um, – are respectful in, to our taxpayers, but also respectful to um, making sure we make great investments with the um, with the treasure the taxpayers of Georgia have entrusted us with. And a quick follow-up before we let you go, Speaker Burns, on mental health, your chamber already passed that unanimously. And on the very last day of session this year, the Senate did not move it. Uh, what happened and how do you keep that from happening again this year and seeing it die completely. Hey, that's a good question. I'll be glad when you share that with me, I'll try to solve it. If you give me that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, well, look, I look, um, you know, look, uh, Lieutenant Governor Jones and, and I were both new in, in our respective roles. Um, he's a friend of mine. He's a very um, qualified public servant. He's proven that he's a, he's a good family man. He's um, he's worked very well with his, with his chamber and uh, I, I think we'll 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 get there because the issue is too important um, for Georgia, and he and his members in the Senate care about Georgians for us not to move forward on that issue. And um, I'm just I'm I'm just committed to work with them in in whatever way is necessary to um, to help move that issue forward. And I, I believe we'll I believe we'll be successful. And I and I hope that we will be successful early on because the House is certainly committed to that part of the health of all Georgians. Speaker Burns, I want to ask you about another issue. There's been an uptick in anti-Semitic attacks in Georgia and beyond. The House, of course, passed a measure to combat anti-Semitism by defining it as a hate crime this year. As, you, as It got held up in the Senate, as you just mentioned. We don't always know why things get held <laughs> up across the hall. Um, but do you think lawmakers should... should? I know you endorse that bill. and I know, you, I know you're supportive of that measure. But do you think lawmakers should take additional steps as well next year, um, such as potentially uh, following Florida's lead and banning groups for sending harassing messages on private property like the leaflets that that state lawmaker Esther Panage in your chamber, uh, the anti-Semitic hate leaflets she got? Should should lawmakers consider new steps to, to ban that sort of thing? Greg, the House has taken the lead um, over the years under Speaker Ross's leadership and now under a new speaker in, in anti-Semitic issues, on uh, hate crimes issues, uh, I think we stand ready to certainly go back. You know, the world changes constantly. And certainly I think this is one of the, one of the discussions we'll have. I know, as, as this panel knows, and our, and our listeners know that the House has met with, um, my members are, have met with families and different groups with, um, with the consulate general, on on discussing discussing the issues that are, are occurring in Israel right now and, and and also how those impacts translate back here in America and the issues they're causing and certainly historically I I think the House will stand ready to um to uh to take a look and see if there are strengthening as you say Florida did. I'm not exactly familiar with everything they've done they did down there, but certainly we'll be looking at those. And we do a great I think we do great work and my members do in the house. We uh we take time to um pause for a moment and uh look at the facts surrounding issues 
and I think we developed in great, really sound policy initiatives that we that we usually move through as legislation when we consider the facts. And there's some troubling facts now in our country, and certainly even in our state, when it comes to um, hate crimes, and especially when it comes to um, our friends that um, of the Jewish faith that um, are being targeted in America. And certainly, Greg, as you know, as we travel to Israel, certainly it um, gives um, gives you um, a, a new a new uh, understanding of, of some of the issues that mm-hmm. those of the Jewish faith deal with on a regular basis. And we're certainly willing and, and able to um, engage again on that issue. Speaker Burns, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much for uh, talking with us. We'll look forward to watching the special session unfold, the redistricting session, which the governor has called for November 29th. You've got a short turnaround time. I think it's uh, December 8th that uh, Judge Jones wants to see potentially new maps. So you've got a lot of work cut out for you coming uh, coming up ahead. Thank you in the meantime for being with us today, and you are always welcome here on Politically Georgia. Bill, thank you, and thank you for the discussion uh, that I listen to you guys having and y'all have had on the podcast and on this new um, new uh, venture here. So we appreciate what y'all bring to us, and certainly y'all, y'all, um, y'all deal with the facts also, and I appreciate that as well as a Georgian. And um, thank you for what y'all do, and uh, look forward to um, getting together with you soon again. Thank you. Thank you again so much, uh, Mr. Speaker. We're going to get our final break of the show out of the way right now. When we come back, David Chalian, the uh, vice president and political director at CNN. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. No media organization in Atlanta swarms politics like the AJC. We produce this podcast and the Morning Jolt newsletter, and now we have the new Politically Georgia PM Update newsletter. Make it your afternoon appointment to get caught up on what's going on while you're at work. You can get it in your inbox for free every weekday afternoon. Just go to AJC.com slash Politically Georgia newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash Politically Georgia newsletter. Before we get to David Chalian from CNN, um, I'm curious, um, Patricia, what did you take from some of what you heard from Speaker Burns today? For instance, his observations about the redistricting session and what he thinks could unfold. Well, I thought it was fascinating that he said the judge has opinions and we have opinions of our own. <laughs> you know, it sure doesn't sound like he's going to be taking the judge's decision as a literal roadmap of how that special session is going to go. Although, of course, they'll need to be extremely cognizant of what the judge said because these could just end up straight back in court where they started. Mm-hmm. So they're going to have a real balancing act to do. Um, of course, they're going to have to, um, as he 
really described individual members, when it gets down to this redistricting process, it really does start to come down to individual members whose districts might get a haircut. Are those chairman of committees? Are those people close with leadership? Uh, Are those people whose districts could become unwinnable if they change in a certain way. It all is all about those individual members when you get down to redrawing these lines. But Greg, I did think it was interesting that he said he thinks Judge Jones will be pleased with what they come up with. Yeah, that was my takeaway. He he was very clear to me, at least, that he Georgia lawmakers will not take the same route that Alabama lawmakers did when they had a similar ruling and basically ignored the court's yeah. uh, orders and came up with their own maps that were then rejected. Uh, the quote that I jotted down, this is a paraphrase, is at the end of the day, we'll be in a place where Judge Jones will be able to accept and also what's best for our members. So he's trying to strike that balance. It, it might not be exactly what the you know what the judge <laughs> had in mind, uh, who knows, uh, but I, I, it sounds like they're going to adhere to his uh, Judge Jones's order, which, by the way, is just a reminder, called for one majority black, one new majority black district mm-hmm. in West Metro Atlanta and seven new majority black legislative districts. The most, five in five Metro in Atlanta. Five in the House and, and two in the Senate. Five in the right? House, two in the Senate, and five in Metro Atlanta, two in Ma- Metro Macon. Uh, Tia, he also, uh, in answer to Greg's question, made it clear that he is concerned about anti-Semitism and what the General Assembly can do about it. Of course, last year it was the House that passed uh, Esther Panitch's bill, which would give a definition to anti-Semitism and therefore folded into the state's hate crimes uh, law. But he's still going to have to deal with the Senate, and we're not sure how much further he wants to go beyond the Panitch bill. Yeah, I thought it was interesting when we asked him about that and some other issues. He kind of, in a very diplomatic way, mentioned that checks and balances or inherent conflict in working with the Senate that sometimes has different ideas of how things should go. Senate leaders, where um, they don't always have exactly the same um, the roadmap ahead. So I thought it was interesting even to hear him in a very diplomatic way talk about having to work with the Senate on the anti-Semitism bill, as well as other things that are going to come on their plate. It was wonderful to get a chance to hear from the speaker today, and we're really happy that he was able to join us. And and this is our first week on WABE. Uh, David Chalian is now with us by phone, uh, CNN's political director, vice president and political director. Uh, David, you're here, of course, with Tia Mitchell, Patricia Murphy, Greg Bluestein, and me. I'm Bill Nygut. You know, and it, as we introduce you, one of the things I was thinking about in welcoming you to the show is there was a time in your long career when Georgia was such a reliably red state in presidential and statewide elections that you probably wouldn't talk have talked about Georgia much at all, <laughs> but after the uh, uh, election of Joe Biden, the first presidential candidate, Democratic presidential candidate in Georgia to win since 1992 when Bill Clinton took the state, two Democratic senators, Donald Trump challenging the uh, uh, election here, uh, Fonnie Willis. Suddenly we're on your radar, David. Oh, without a doubt. And it's a pleasure to be with you all. I mean, Georgia has been the center of the national political universe, as you noted, for uh, the last many years. So I will say, you know, in covering uh, the Obama campaign uh, back in 2008, I do remember David Pluff, the campaign manager back then, though they didn't really compete for Georgia, kept saying to reporters, you know, 
keep Georgia and Arizona in your sights. These states are coming on for Democrats as the demographic uh, changes were taking place. So I I think we knew that Democrats were going to start investing in Georgia and not uh, ignoring it, uh, which, of course, would would make Republicans uh, play there uh, as well. And and obviously what happened in, in 2020 was the culmination of that. Tia? Hey, David, it's so it's so good to see you um, on our show. We've done a lot of the CNN shows together. I wanted to ask you about you talked about Georgia being a battleground state. But before we get to Georgia, we're going to have all these other primaries. We're looking at Iowa. We're looking at New Hampshire. Two th- well, let's start here. Let's start with New Hampshire in this Democratic primary. Do you think that Joe Biden has anything to worry about when it comes to Dean Phillips or even um, RFK Jr., Cornell West running as independents? Yeah, let's take them uh, piece by piece, because I don't think uh, they're the same across all three uh, candidates you named there. I would just note to you, I don't think Dean Phillips presents a real challenge to Joe Biden in actually getting the Democratic nomination. I don't even think he presents a real challenge right now in terms of uh, digging into Joe Biden's potential delegate hall, uh, because, as you know, New Hampshire is uh, likely to be out of sync with the DNC rules, and it's not going to be an officially approved event by the Democratic National Committee. And therefore, uh, delegates may not be awarded out of that contest uh, since Joe Biden uh, has attempted here to rejigger the Democratic schedule and put South Carolina up front instead of uh, New Hampshire and Iowa. So um, that being said, I don't think it's a real threat to to the nomination. I do think Dean Phillips represents a real political problem for Joe Biden. And we see it in all the polling, which is that Democrats largely uh, would like to see someone other than Joe Biden as the nominee. Now, I don't think Dean Phillips is going to be the answer to that for all those Democrats, but there is clearly a hunger and desire for a candidate not named Joe Biden among his fellow Democrats. And so Dean Phillips now stepping into that space, even if he's not going to be able to sort of coalesce uh, enough support to make a real dent in, in Joe Biden, what we know is having a primary challenge of any kind It gets a ton of media attention. Dean Phillips is going to be covered. And he is contrasting himself with Biden on a couple of the key points that Republicans are making. So he's feeding into the vulnerabilities that already exist for Joe Biden, whether it is his age and Dean Phillips calling for a generational change in leadership in the party or something like border security and immigration, which is you know, probably the weakest point of all of the issues tested for Joe Biden and a real vulnerability and obviously a major um, galvanizing force for Republicans and all the Republican contenders uh, running uh, in part on immigration and border security. And Dean Phillips is also out there now criticizing from inside the tent. So that presents a political headache for the president. And all you need to do uh, is take a look back at 1980 when Teddy Kennedy ran against uh, Jimmy Carter or when Patrick Buchanan was running against George H.W. Bush in 1992. These were not successful primary challenges, but they certainly did some damage to those incumbent presidents who ended up only serving one term. We're here with CNN political director David Chalian. David, it's Greg. 
I want to switch to the Republican side of the equation because here in Georgia, I've heard this a million times. You've probably heard it plenty too. Uh, Republicans who come to the state always say that the path to the White House starts and ends with Georgia. Last time Chris Christie came here, he told me directly that Republicans cannot win the White House without winning Georgia, flipping Georgia back um, uh, from the blue column. Governor Kemp has said that many, many times too. Do you share that view or is that more political hyperbole? I mean, I think if you were to get out your, you know, road to 270 maps, Greg, you could uh, come up with a Biden path to 270 that doesn't include Georgia, but it obviously significantly uh, complicates it. It, it, In terms of a Republican, I, I do agree with the sentiment that it is really hard to imagine a Republican path to 270 that doesn't have Georgia in the fold. It's probably mathematically possible you can do it, but um, politically, uh, in reality, it just seems that uh, a Republican would need Georgia in his or her column to actually get to 270 electoral votes. And I will tell you this. I know we're a year away, guys, but when I talk to Democratic operatives, of all the states that Joe Biden flipped from Donald Trump states in 2016 to Joe Biden states in 2020, there were five of them, right? Uh, obviously, that blue wall of Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, but also Arizona and, of course, Georgia. Uh, Democrats fear Georgia slipping from their hands the most. Democrats I talk to uh, fear Georgia reverting back uh, to Republicans uh, more than the other uh, four states in that group of five. Hmm. And so I think you're going to see endless attention on Georgia uh, from uh, both the Republican and Democratic campaigns. I think it's probably going to see numbers of dollars spent in Georgia and organizing and efforts in Georgia that even though you thought you saw all of that in 2020 and 2022, I actually think it's going to be a whole new level of intensity just uh, down there. Da- David, I think yeah. one of the things that's interesting about what you just said um, in terms of uh, Democrats' fear that uh, Georgia could slip away has to do with what we've seen in some of your polling, in other polls across the country. Um, black voters are not as solidly behind President Biden as they were in 2020 and as Democrats need them to be if they expect to win the White House again, correct? No doubt. It is a uh, The African-American vote is a critical uh component of the overall Democratic coalition. And there is no way for Joe Biden to repeat his performance in Georgia without an energized, enthused uh, black electorate turning out. It's obviously, in addition to sort of the white college educated suburban Atlanta piece, the other piece, if you're looking at different, you know, slicing and dicing the electorate in Georgia, that matters most is the African-American vote for a Democrat. And so um, you are right to note it. Now, I will also note this is also uh, proving to be a sort of perennial issue for Democratic incumbent presidents. Uh, We even saw this with Barack Obama, the first African-American president, about a year out from his election. A lot of stories written, concern about uh, black voters uh, disappointed with his performance and and wouldn't turn out. Uh, That that obviously didn't come uh, to bear. And I I would note that the Biden folks are concerned about this, and it is real, and uh, it is part of their calculation of what they need to work on. And by the way, 
They feel this way about young voters, about Hispanic voters. I mean, there are so many pieces of the Biden coalition that are uh, not yet showing up in some enthusiastic way in polling that causes heartburn among many Democrats. Um, but this is they their answer is that when they believe they have a one on one race with Donald Trump, who they believe will be the likely Republican nominee, that the contrast will be so clear that it will uh, help solve that uh, problem that we see now in sort of a depressed uh, energy around uh, the black vote. We'll see if they're right about that. Uh, It is clearly an item of concern. David, it's Patricia Murphy. When we talk about an October surprise, we typically are thinking the October of the election year. But it does strike me that the war in Israel and Hamas, between Israel and Hamas, um, has really revealed a rift among Democrats, even on Capitol Hill, um, about what is the best way to proceed. And Joe Biden certainly is could be in a very different place, either positive or negative, with some of these groups, younger voters, progressive voters. Are you hearing from the Biden campaign that any of this is a part of their calculation? Do they Are they seeing those kinds of breakdowns and thinking ahead about that at all? I mean, there's no doubt about it, uh, Patricia. First of all, President Biden is going to Minnesota today, right? A marginal battleground state, blue-meaning uh, state, but one that uh, both parties sort of uh, keep an eye on and has a uh, heavy uh, Muslim-American population, uh, Arab-American population uh, in in that state. Michigan is the prime example of a major battleground state that has a significant portion of Arab Americans who have been overwhelmingly supportive of Joe Biden in the 2020 race versus Donald Trump. But does President Biden's current full-throated embrace of Israel uh, cause him a political minefield that he has to navigate? Um, it, It likely does. Now, you are right to know we are a year away and we have no idea how present domestically, politically in voters' minds the Israel-Hamas war is going to be at decision-making time uh, next year. But just look at how Joe Biden immediately, I mean, coming out in the uh, aftermath of the terrorist attack on October 7th in Israel with uh, some of the strongest support of Israel we've ever heard from an American president. When I talk to Biden political advisors, they would say that is the easy part for us that we knew that that would be the easy part for us. And we knew that there would then be sequencing where it would become far trickier to navigate the waters as more and more questions uh, get raised about the Israel government and military's uh, response to the terrorist attack. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. And it's why you are seeing, you know, Biden and his team layer in more calls of Uh, humanitarian concern and focusing on getting humanitarian aid into Gaza and uh, the need for um, sort of the rules of war and engagement to be applied by Israel and not to uh, discriminately attack uh, civilians in any way. And so this uh, is a moment where Joe Biden, who is at such a weak position politically at the moment, his numbers are down, you know, despite 
legislative successes or uh, better feelings about the economy out there in the country as uh, inflation ticks down a bit. I mean, he's still basically in a tied race. It's not losing at the moment to Donald Trump. And that is causing a lot of concern. And there's no piece of his coalition that he can afford uh, not to stimulate and care for and make sure that they are engaged and enthused. And that includes even a smaller piece of the coalition, like the Arab American community, especially in a battleground state like Michigan, Uh, which he cannot afford to lose. David Chalian, you have so much information that we could talk to you for the next two hours. I hope you'll come back and join us again as the election proceeds. It's been a real joy to have you with us on Politically Georgia today. So thank you very much, David. My pleasure. Congrats on the show. Thanks. That's all the time we have for today's Politically Georgia podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE weekday mornings at 10. Or find us at your favorite podcast app early every afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.